Father, we thank you for this beautiful Sabbath morning. We thank you for the way you are, for the way you created the universe to be, uh, that you do not manipulate, that you do not use force. We ask this morning in our discussion as we continue to work through the prophets that your spirit will guide us, that we will uh, be able to understand and see you more clearly and, and the plan of salvation more clearly as a result of our time together. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, we're on page seven. We're going to start with Ezekiel 3. And we're going to read 16 to 21. Tara, would you please read that? At the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die. And you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life. That wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they will die from their sin. But you will have saved yourself. Again, when a righteous person turns from their righteousness and does evil, and they put a stumbling block before them, they will die. Since you did not warn them, they will die for their sin. The righteous things that the person did, did will not be remembered, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the righteous person not to sin, and they do not sin, they will surely live because they took warning, and you have saved yourself. That's a strong statement, and one that when I was a child... I took on myself as an injunction to be obeyed, (laughs) much to the consternation of my classmates. (laughs) So what do we do with that? And and you notice the, the very clear statement about saving a person from sin and thus from death. So there's there's a causal thing going on here uh that sin leads to death and that we're supposed to warn the person of their way. We're not supposed to stop them, to warn them. How do we do that in in a, a, a relationship? I think part of it, you can show the cause and effect relationship that we were talking about. If you tell them, if you keep on doing this, you're going to hurt yourself, you're going to get hurt, you're going to hurt others, and it's not going to be the best for you. Okay. Now, if we put this in another analogy... Another another ballpark altogether, not salvation now, different setting. And someone's drowning. No, well, let, maybe let's back up. Someone is uh, headed uh, past the buoys. Uh, and I don't yell at them, hey, you're going out too far. Am I responsible? They go out too far, get in an undertow. Probably legally or not, but morally, if you have information, and you can see what they're not—they're not, they're not seeing because see yeah. you have the bigger picture. They just see what's yeah. right in front of them. It looks the same. Yeah, yeah you feel responsible. Yeah. So it, we that we understand perfectly, but somehow warning someone of the path they're on is is harder to do. It's a lot how we do it. Mm-hmm. I think it's that was I think traditional Adventists took that. I grew up with a lot of harsh warning to scare you, you know, 
that wasn't received very well, you know. But if, it's, if tears are in your voice and you were appealing, yeah. and, uh, it's very different. And if you have a relationship with that yeah, person. Yeah. yeah. Now, one thing, that qualification I think we need to make for this, Ezekiel is called to be a prophet. Yeah, okay. and, El, and Ellen White was given the same yeah, warning, so you remember, yeah. uh, in her early years because she was wanting not to give God's message that he gave to her for other people. So I think that... Is, is the context of that speaking to that, him as a prophet, if he does not give God's warnings that God gave to him to share? That's my assumption that I bring to it. I don't think it means that we're supposed to be spying on other people, trying to find their where they're going wrong and, and tell them about right. it. I, 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 think, I think that is judging. But I think... I always think it's appropriate and, and necessary in a close relationship where you have a relationship with someone and you see them making seriously wrong choices. Uh, it's appropriate to talk to them about it. I, I remember doing this with a, a housemate one time who was, who was um, with a fellow from another culture than hers. Uh, and he was manipulating and abusing her and using her and... She was shacking out with him, and she got herself pregnant by him. He had an abortion, the whole nine yards. And I remember at some point before the abortion, before the pregnancy, all of that, sitting down with her. Actually, I wrote her a letter because I could never see her. She was out all night, <laughs> you know, and she was gone all day. And so I wrote her a note and left it for her, and I said, you know, I'm really concerned about you and, and the choices you're making right now. And I care about you and, and so on. And that opened it up so that she was willing to come and talk to me. And we had a, a, a really nice conversation. I didn't stop her, but I tried. And um, I think of the other time I was in the dorm at Andrews. And uh, I walked into the, the bathroom that we shared with our sweet mates, my roommate and I. And I sat... I went to use the bathroom and I happened to look up at the ceiling and here was a life-size portrait or a uh, poster of a nude male. And uh, it was like something boomeranged my head. I just went like that instinctively and and thought, oh no, what are we going to do now? And uh, I talked to my my roommate, brought it up. She said, Gene, this is not good. We've got to talk to the dean. So I went and talked to the dean and the dean said, I have found it works best if you deal with it rather than I deal with it. And so I went back to my roommate and said, what can we do? So we had a casual acquaintance with this this girl. We decided to write her as loving a note as we could possibly muster about this poster, and we did. And we left it in her room on the desk closest to the door. We just could open the door and slip it in there. She came and thanked us for it. She said it meant so much that we cared that much to, to do that. So that was an experience I learned that, you know, it's not about judging people. It's about caring, caring enough to be willing to uh, take a risk. I had to do that with a student this week. Uh, students making some really bad choices that he thinks are really good choices. 
and I had to call him on it and, and warn him of his way. And I felt like I was coming on too strong, but he's still friendly. He's still willing to be friends with me, and so I just hope he takes my advice. <laughs> um, well, let's move on. Uh, Ezekiel 11, 17. And this is 17 to 21. Doug, you want to read 17 to 21. Uh, Therefore say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you back in the land of Israel again. They will return uh, to it, uh, remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart. I put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people. I will be their God. As for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and uh, detestable items, I will bring down on uh, their own heads what they have done declares the sovereign lord uh, i have i will account them hold them accountable for their ways accountability so this sounds like salvation happens after you enter the promised land and and that's how i think a lot of people interpret uh going to heaven and then we get a new heart uh, when we mm-hmm. get to heaven but I, I would like to suggest that we get a new heart now, uh, as if we want it. And, and note this imagery of the stony heart versus the heart of flesh. You know, Gene, that has been probably my most used powerful text to deal with my stony heart. <laughs> I remember I, te- I started using it when I was teaching senior Bible in the 70s. Kids, Mr. Hammond, we don't want to. We, what do you? We don't want to learn all this stuff. You know, it was a real rebellious area. Mm-hmm. I, I know. That, I was part of that era. <laughs> I feel that anger come up, and I. This is not good for the Bible teacher to be angry at these poor kids. They're just kids. This Lord, take up my heart of stone. Give me a heart of flesh. Put your spirit in me. I used to use that that way on a daily, weekly basis to remove. My anger. I use it. I've been using it this week therapeutically for some of the nastiest stuff. To we would call cognitive blockers, but it's spiritual embedded extraction of. And God does that. He takes out that heart of stone. Gives you a heart of flesh. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. I just love that passage. Yeah. 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 I I I love that thought of the stony heart because yeah. I, I've actually written or, or composed a song. Talking to the Lamb, and and how we offered our sacrifice on our stony heart, uh-huh. and how God wants to give us a heart of flesh, heart of flesh. and that that it's the stony heart that led to Jesus' crucifixion. It's the stony heart that leads us to re-crucify Him afresh. It's the stony heart. Uh, it, it becomes the altar which we use for sacrifice, sacrificing people, sacrificing. Jesus, so that we're we're actually doing a kind of human sacrifice by the way we undermine people, 
pull them down, tear them down. So that's that's how I've used that metaphor, and um, that heart of flesh is is the place where God takes His throne in our lives. That that tenderness and compassion. It's it's a great metaphor yeah. for salvation. Brennan Manning, I always appreciated. So I think the greatest attribute of God is His tenderness. I mean, it, it comes out of you know, preaching, preaching about God, and then finding God. You know, partway through His life and His rebirth, and then we where he writes in that deep tenderness. Well, I, I experienced this personally, and I've, I've said this so many times, and since this is all online, I, I'm going to risk saying it again. Uh, I was raised uh, where we practiced cannibalism on Sabbath afternoons after church. Uh, we had, if my parents had company over for dinner, it wasn't always, but often we would sit around and munch on people that were liberal or they were bad or they were you know, this and that and and so I grew up in an extremely critical atmosphere as a child uh, in the Northwest, Northwestern Adventism and uh, by the time I was 14 I was the best critic of anybody around I mean nobody, nobody came by my eyesight without getting criticized or condemned and I remember the summer I was 14, I was about to get into academy. I was sitting at camp meeting with my best friend, and I was tearing down everybody within sight. And, uh, the gymnasts for Christ were there from various colleges. They had banded together to, to provide a gymnastic team that was also going around and trying to revive everything. It was in the 70s, you know, 71. And... Uh, I was criticizing them, I was criticizing this and that. And what happened is that God uh, led me through a journey where I, I began to experience what he went through in the Old Testament, trying to win us back, and where I went through the Gospels and it became real. And it became so real that it completely undid me. I mean, it took away my stony heart. And, of course, when you're young, it's easier for God to get rid of that stony heart than when you're in your middle age or older years of having a stony heart. But I remember the difference. I remember going to church after my conversion and loving everybody. And there was no more criticism, no more judging, no more any of that. I just loved everybody. And it was just such a wonderful experience. Just my, instead of a calcified heart <laughs> that couldn't pump blood anymore, I had this fully pumping heart that was warm and and living and and embracing. So it's great. And it's amazing how he. I mean, that is a huge paradigm shift. It is. It's, it's, it's the cornerstone of my life. You know, I, I go back to that point over and, the, and over. And there's no way you could ever do that. I mean, no. you've been conditioned to be critical no. and negative. And I remember when it happened to me, and I did in, in one of those times. And you just, you just felt like you're in love for the first time. You just felt like you're walking out of the air. I mean, the Spirit of God totally changed your, the way you perceive the world and everything. Or walking up the person who threw me out of my job and my 
in my hometown and having feelings of, you know, caring and apologizing for the way I felt and talked about him. And it was just, it was just this totally different reverse shift. I, I wrote letters to all my, we had moved, we had moved the year before uh, to Arizona from Oregon. And I wrote to all my old classmates that I felt I had misrepresented God to because I was so critical. I wrote to them and I said, I'm so sorry I made God look so bad to you. That's amazing. Yeah, I did that. And they were like, what? (laughs) What are you talking about? You know, they couldn't because they were still on the other model, the other paradigm. Did that totally take away, when you have a critical spirit, does it totally take away your ability to love and be? What oh, did, absolutely. Well, well, Doug, let me back up in the end story. Um, how I came to aware of my condition was they. There was a lot of talk about a revival going around yeah. in 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 the schools, yeah. and I was very nervous. I did not want anything to change. Um, My relationship with God was like this. He was up there, and I was down here. And he he answered my prayers, and he uh, told me what I should do. And I did it, and then he'd get me into heaven. And that was the beginning and end of my relationship. That was as far as it went. (laughs) And one day, I, I started praying for a revival because I felt guilty that I didn't want a revival. So I started praying for one. Didn't want one, but I started praying for it anyway. And still small voice reminded me of a week of prayer, speaker mainly Malcolm Maxwell at Laurelwood Academy, where he had said, all you have to do is love God. And if you love God, you'll keep his commandments, and that's all that God wants. And I realized I didn't love God. I was just stark. It didn't matter whether you define love as a principle or as a feeling. I didn't have either one. And so I started praying, Dear God, please help me to love you. And I expected him to send this warm, tingly feeling in my heart, and then I would begin to love everybody. And and nothing happened, and nothing happened, and I began to get angry with God. And about that time, I came across a sermon that was had been printed out uh, that was by Morris Benden. And he said, You can't love someone you don't know. To get to know God, and he recommended reading Desire of Ages for half an hour. And so I set up my alarm clock. <laughs> and I started reading Desire of Ages, and I looked at my alarm clock, and I read Desire of yeah. Ages, and I looked at my alarm clock. <laughs> and about 30 minutes later of looking at my alarm clock, <laughs> I was like, this isn't working. <laughs> Nothing's changing. And so I was tempted to really be unhappy with God. And then there was that night when he took me through the Bible and I experienced the love of God and it completely transformed me. Did, did he just show up? How do you describe that? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if you remember that in the 70s, Emilio Connectly was going around with his Eden to Eden sermon. Just a powerful sermon. And I wanted to emulate that and I wanted to move my audience and I used to practice preaching. And so that night I decided to pretend I was preaching and do an Eden to Eden thing in the king. Yes, that's exactly what happened. Yes. When I came to the Gospels, I stopped preaching and started living it. It was now real. And I could feel the cement of my heart breaking up because as I tried to 
to follow Jesus from Gethsemane to Caiaphas to, to Herod to Pilate. As I tried to follow that path, I couldn't. I was, it was, there was so much going on in here that I, I couldn't do anything but try to make it to Golgotha. Mm-hmm. And so I missed all the trials of Jesus. <laughs> and I made it to Golgotha just in time to hear him say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And my whole world caved in. I mean, I was just done. Because I realized the reason I didn't love him is I didn't trust him. And hear him, hearing him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, made me realize I was safe with God. There was nothing he would ever put me through that wouldn't keep me from trusting him. The way I held him up and felt safe with him, yeah. Yeah. Gene, that's like, thanks for sharing that. That's incredible. I have three clients right now that are my, your students, my clients. <laughs> they, they, they can't. They, they can't, there's no, there's no hard flush toward God. And there's reasons for that. One was, his dad would whip him. Every time he did something wrong, he'd whip him until he would sit on the floor, until he stopped crying. So he learned to block all his feeling and affect. And, and um, this week I was trying to get one to do intimate talk with God. That's one thing that really pulls out for me. Mm-hmm, oh, Lord, mm-hmm. I love Thank you so You know, I do that kind of thing. He said, I can't do that because I don't, I don't experience that. I believe it in my mind. I don't it's, you have these things that, and so often, you know, to try to soften the, the fellow ground. You know, life is hard on us. And I, yeah. um, as a child, I was conditioned not to show my emotions because yeah. of being mistreated. And by having a, having a brother who heckled me constantly, um, I, I learned to block a lot of that. And what I have to do in prayer is to start somewhere with God and say, you know, help me to, to open up. Help me to let it out. Help me. And I have to just start there. Um, and he does. And sometimes I, I'm, I'm not a person who cries easily anyway. I just, that's just my temperament. So sometimes I cry in different ways, like talking it out uh, is a way of emotionally shedding some of that. That's often, while well, I was doing it this way, that's often I usually will ask, just so I get an idea how much work I have to do, <laughs> to say, when's the last time you teared up? Well, I can't remember. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's yeah. that kind of, and it, you know, you just, but when I've experienced, you know, you can, you can go through all those steps. But sometimes the Lord just shows up. You, when you ask Him, or you, I mean, for to, to break through what you just described, to break for Him to break through to your heart, and to experience that tenderness and that warmth. It's Doug. It's when you feel safe with God that you can you feel do that. safe enough that you could open that up. It's, it's like it's like heart. when you when you finally realize you're safe and that God is showing showing showering mm-hmm. out His compassion on you. Mm-hmm. And then all that pain can just respond and come out. The incredibly d- painful thing is that some people want their hardness of heart. And I'm not saying that about your students. No, they, but they, feel, they feel safe there because they've used that for yeah, exactly. years and years. But, and, but, and, and, it, and it feels so unsafe mm-hmm. to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Oh. Because somebody's going to just 
come across and and wound you all the more. I don't know how many clients of that say, Doug, I can't do that because if I ever stop start crying, I'll never stop. I just, yeah. well, you know, I've had too many patients die from crying. It's really good in therapeutic and cleansing. <laughs> but it, it's scary because you feel so vulnerable and out of control. Just like when you totally open up, you know. To, what what are some of the best avenues that you found to to develop for that trust to show up, for that sake. Well, you described wine, you know, when you realized... A God that would go to such lengths to yeah. win me back is a God who would never hurt me. He'd never hurt you. Never put you down. See, it was the evidence, that the, the, the living demonstration of the love of God on the cross yeah. that did that for me. That's why, yeah. So, okay, Uh, let's go to Ezekiel 18. Excellent topics. If I didn't have the whole Bible to get through, we would take longer. So, 18, would you like to be? I'll tell you what, I think the best thing to do is I'll have you read another passage and we'll walk through this. So, there's a proverb, and, and Jeremiah cites the same proverb. Uh, when the parents eat unripe grapes, the teeth, children's teeth suffer, meaning people suffer for their father's sins. It's not our fault. It's this blaming thing again. It's not our fault. Uh, we're suffering because our parents were idolaters. We didn't do it. They did it. That's that kind of thing. But it goes deeper than that. The whole belief system of, I think, tribal communities. I don't know that this is true of more settled uh, communities like Mesopotamia. But in tribal communities, there was this belief that you could make children pay for their father's sins. Now, remember when that actually happened in Israel? Anybody remember? People were destroyed for the parents of their children. The classic case is David and the Gibeonites. Remember, there's the famine in, in the land. Right. And David goes to God and says, why are we having a famine? And the word comes back. The Gibeonites were, were destroyed by, or not completely, but they were, they were being killed by Saul. And the Israel, you remember the Gibeonites were the people in Joshua who, who, who faked it. They faked that they had traveled from a long distance and they had this moldy bread and these worn out shoes uh, and they persuaded Israel to do a covenant with them. And when you make a covenant with the people that you're, you're going to protect them, you're going to keep them safe, you can't go killing them, right? right. And, and this is what Saul did. So what does David do? He, goes to, he doesn't go to God and say, what can I do to heal the land? He goes to the Gibeonites and says, what can we do to make this up to you? And the Gibeonites at first saying, you know, we're not so sure we want to, you want to do anything. And so he keeps pressing them, and finally they say, okay, hand over seven, Saul, seven of Saul's sons to be, that we can put them to death before the Lord. So you have a clear case, and they did. They put seven of Saul's, actually his grandsons, actually several of them were his sons and several of them were his grandsons. They put them to death. And, and the interesting thing about this story is that Rizpah, who is uh, one of Saul's wives. Rizpah 
takes, she has two of her sons who have been put to death. She takes sackcloth and puts it over them and watches them day and night to keep the wild animals off of them. And the text indicates that the rains do not come until David takes their bodies and puts them in a proper tomb. Now that's contrary to what was supposed to happen. When you're making that kind of reparation, your body never comes home again. It stays out there in the wilderness. And so by undoing that, he's in a sense undoing this children dying for their parents' sins. It's quite an interesting story if you read it carefully, read it closely. So that's behind this whole chapter. And what Ezekiel is suggesting is, uh, verse 4, All lives are mine, the life of the parent and the life of the child belong to me. Only the one who sins will die. Now, that immediately brings up questions like, what do you do with the story of Achan? People are declared innocent when they act justly and responsibly, and it tells all the things they do. But suppose one of the, okay, verse 9, last part, such people are innocent and they shall live. But suppose one of them has a violent child who sheds blood or does any one of these things, even though his parents didn't do any of them, and it lists all the things he does. Then verse verse 13, the last line, he shall surely die and his blood will be on him. But suppose he has a child who sees all the sins that his father's committed. He becomes alarmed and doesn't do them. He doesn't do X, Y, and Z. Verse 17, last line, he won't die because of his father's guilt. He will surely live. As for his father, if he exploited the weak, committed robbery, or did anything else that wasn't good for his people, he will die because of his own guilt. Verse 19, you will say, why doesn't the child bear his parents' guilt? The child has acted justly and responsibly. The child kept all my regulations and observed them. The child will surely live. Only the one who sins will die. A child won't bear a parent's guilt and a parent won't bear a child's guilt. Those who do right will be declared innocent and the wicked will be declared guilty. And then he goes on to to reiterate uh, what he has just said. And then verse 23. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord God? Certainly not. If they change their ways, they will live. So here's, here's an example of a paradigm shift that is taking place in Israel. And you're seeing, actually seeing develop, theological development taking place here in Ezekiel. No longer, David, you kill children for their father's sins. That's not appropriate. Uh, and God doesn't do it. And, and in fact, what is really embedded behind this text is the inference that since it is sin that leads to death, if you aren't doing those sins, you're not going to die. You know, it's just the cause-effect relationship here. And what is really, really marvelous about this text is that the minute you turn around, you begin to live. Just turn around. That's, that's called repentance in, in the Hebrew in the Hebrew language. To repent is to turn around. So, and and then of course verse twenty three. I dearly love 
Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? Certainly not. If they change their ways, they will live. So this is this is truly talking to the stony-hearted people. You remember that, maybe you don't remember. If you've read Ezekiel, you know that at the beginning of Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel, you are going to be talking to a hard-headed people, hard-headed, stiff-necked people. I am going to make your head hard against their head. And, and Ezekiel has the most flaming, angry picture of God and of all the prophets. He's, he's, he is that the most, and because he's talking the people's language. Uh, you know what makes God angry? You're thinking God is so angry that you do all these X, Y, and Z. So it's, it's kind of building a backfire against the fire for Ezekiel to do that. So what principles discussed here undergird atonement and salvation in this chapter? I can see that be huge because he's really building this individualism that it's your personal choice or your personal receiving of turning around and receiving rather than the group. That was very much a group society, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and all you have to do is go on certain places in the Middle East today. It still is. Isn't and it, it still is. Uh, everything's a group done. Yeah. So it's an individual. Salvation is an individual matter. Now, we believe... Here it says that... Child should not suffer for the parent, sins of the parent and the parent for the sins of the child. What about Jesus suffering for our sins? What do we do with that? Or is that not the same principle? We're not his, we're more his child than he is, and he's more our parent, but is he suffering for our sins? And how, how does that work with Ezekiel saying, you don't suffer for the sins? Each person suffers their own sin. One difference I can see is that Jesus voluntarily did it. He chose it in order to save us. It wasn't that. Okay. It was so let, let's probe that a little deeper. How does Jesus' suffering for our sins save us? Is it because he suffered the penalty we should have had to suffer? And if so, how is that different than what we have in Ezekiel? Unfortunately, I like thorny problems. <laughs> because when, when you wrestle with them and you finally find an answer, it, it's like breaking open an alabaster box of perfume and it fulfills, it fills the house. I'm not sure if this is the answer you're looking for, but uh, it makes me think, when you ask that, it makes me think how, um, I think it's in... In one, in one passage somewhere where um, we read the angels offered up their place um, in heaven when Jesus when Jesus said he would he would come to earth and he announced that some of the angels offered up but even an angel's life wouldn't atone for our sins and so it makes me wonder if it's just the that parents can't suffer for their children's sins children can't suffer for their parents. Everyone's individual because it can't 
like the way that it's almost, it seems to me maybe legally it's set up for everyone to individually and only, only someone, only someone who, who has that, um, I don't know, it's like only someone who's equal to the love of the law. Like that's the way I look at it. He's all the fullness of the law, which is love. And so only someone who perfectly fulfills all of that can atone, can, can offer up. So the principle that, that Ezekiel takes on here isn't wrong, it's just the wrong people involved. That we're sinful and that we can never fully yeah. um, atone for our sins, in mm-hmm. that sense, I guess. Yeah, it, it, in other words, it, it seems to me that he's attacking the principle of someone dying for another or being punished for another. And, and let, me, let me explain where Ezekiel's coming from. Ezekiel's in Babylon. And there's no place on earth ever that is more full of substitution That's right. than Babylon. Substitution is everywhere you look in Babylon. And it's especially in religion. So the, the Old Testament as a whole really shies away from overt substitution. There is substitution. There is a sense in which Jesus dies in our place. But it's a, a loose metaphor in, in the Old Testament. It's not this hardcore legal kind of substitution that you have in, the Old, in, in, in Babylon. I, let me just give you some examples. One example is in the, in the descent of Ishtar into hell. She manages to escape after she, she loses everything she has step by step, and then she loses her life, and she's hung up by Eresh Kigal, the queen of hell, like a piece of rotten meat. And uh, she's warned a god, I believe Nergal, uh, up above that if, if she doesn't reappear, he's to get help for her. And, and, and so he goes to, I believe it's Enlil or Ea. I it's been a while since I've read this text. But he, anyway, he goes to the high god and he says, um, Ishtar has not returned, we need to go rescue her. So they go and they, he takes this holy water to her that she's, and sprinkles it on the meat and she comes back to life. And she comes back up. And that should be the end of the story, but no. She has to find someone to take her place. She can't stay out of hell if she doesn't find someone to take her place. Well, she finds her husband, Demuzi, partying and, and having a great time and not mourning her absence. And so she throws him into hell. Uh, and, and, but he manages to connive with his sister, Gestina, <laughs> to take his place. She, his sister feels so sorry for him. She says, I'll take your place for six months out of the year. So they take turns in hell. One, one does six months and the other does the other six months. So, uh, so this is your, a good example of of substitution in in Babylon. The Hebrew Bible is is quite against that, and our view of atonement is much more Babylonian than the Old Testament and the New Testament. Are. The way the way we we view atonement and salvation is much more Babylonian. So I would like to take what you've said and put it in a different paradigm, if I may. And what I, I would like to suggest is this. When we sinned, we acceded to a charge against God. 
that sin does not lead to death. Who is going to make that clear? Who's going to take that charge? If I, I, the easiest way is we die, and that's it. But if we die, this, the, the ultimate death that you shall surely die is eternal, in which there's no resurrection. If, if we die, there's nothing God can do to save us. And he wants to save us. Also, it isn't clear if we die, the sin has caused our death. It could be that God did it. That God killed us. It isn't clear. Uh, if, if you were to stand at Sodom and Gomorrah as it's being consumed... Would you say God did that, or would you say something else happened? Or if you were to stand where Nadab and Abihu come in contact with the presence of God, and the presence of God is a consuming fire, and they die, would you say God just whacked them, or would you say they died as a consequence of their sin? Which would you say? I think most of us would say God did it in all those instances. How is it ever going to be clear to the universe that sin itself leads to death and not God? Because we can't, we can't trust a God who has a sword behind his back and says, you know, come to me, I love you, I'll forgive you. But if you don't, you know, how can you trust a God like that? And so that's, that's the dilemma God faces. So, who's going to do that? What happens is Jesus says, I will do it. And the reason the angels couldn't do it is like you said. They didn't have the capacity because they were created beings. They were dependent on God, the source of love, to love. So being cut off from God, having sin cut them off from him, would lead to their death, but it wouldn't be clear that sin is what took their life. Only Jesus, who doesn't have to have anyone love him in order to be loved. Now, as a human being, he did. He had to get that love from his father. Uh, and that's why he could die. But it's, again, his, you, you mentioned his perfection. His, his perfection is that he totally ever kept the law of love. And that built in him, in fact, he became perfect through suffering, according to Hebrews. And that built in him the capacity to have the highest level of empathy a human being could have. Why is that necessary? Why is that an all-mark of, of perfection? Saying he had mercy on us. Thank you. It's the only way he could bear our sins. You can't bear your sin, bear anyone's sins if you shed them like water off a duck. If you have a harder heart and you don't have that degree of empathy, you can't really experience the sins of another person. That would kill me. And that's that's what I believe took Jesus' life. That's why Jesus goes into Gethsemane saying, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. He's already bearing sin. He's already feeling, he, he's feeling the guilt 
the the lies about God, the distrust, the the hardness of heart. He's feeling all of that, and he can feel it to the fullest capacity because he has the greatest empathy. And it is God and God alone in the flesh, in human flesh, that can demonstrate the truth about sin and it be clear to the universe. This is what sin is. So he is a substitute, but it's for deeper reasons. It's for it's for much yeah, that's how I see it. It's it's much it's a it's a different paradigm. It's a it's a different way of, of constructing that whole thing. In what sense, then, did he walk through that, that he has the right to give you that? Because understanding that God doesn't kill and that sin does is going to drive us to him for healing. And and that's all he needs. I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all to me. That's the purpose of the cross. And I know that, that many people say, well, that's moral influence. Moral influence theory. Well, I say, is the cross not supposed to influence us? Um, you see, the idea of, behind that is the belief that God has to be influenced by the cross. God has to change his mind yeah, no. toward us. And, and I, I, can't, I can't go there. It seems, Gene, that there, at the... the like we were talking earlier, how he, how his spirit intervenes. That whatever the the energy or the source for giving giving us that the, the insight, but it, but also giving us the uh, the heart of flesh. Mm-hmm. There's an essence to this stuff. That it, is, there's a psychological that, reality yeah, here that, that we could never. You know, there's stuff I see. Humanly, this can't happen. I had a patient this week. uh, I mean, this is extreme situation with a community person. uh, And it's just gone. I mean, there's no way on earth. I couldn't even get through. I'm taking them through healing and forgiveness. I have this raging and just crazy stuff going on. This is you looking. I look for what it's connected to and <clears throat> releasing that, digging it through on a spiritual level for you. I'm not even. It's just gone. It's just gone. It's just gone. You know. Well, things don't just go like that. You don't make cognitive restructuring, and it is. It isn't that powerful. <laughs> it's helpful, <laughs> but we usually can't hold it. <laughs> God has gives us. There's there's something there's something about the love of God that I see is more than just a principle. Yeah. It is a dynamic, it's a dynamic, dynamic principle that when God loves us, everything changes. Yeah. It really is that we is. do become a new creation. Yeah, and He has to change those neurological pathways. Absolutely, something. absolutely. And it's it's I've had those I haven't just had my initial conversion I've had those experiences yeah. at different low points in my life where God just picked me up and just righted everything over over something that should have been hurtful but He turned it into something healing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it's just it's powerful. It's kind of pure grace. He just yeah. Gives it.
Yeah. Are we, we're supposed to love others like like God also, like love unconditionally. Well, the way the way I see it, Robert, is we are incapable, right. even as created beings, of loving other people unless we are loved. The way God designed us, and the way he designed angels, the way he designed the whole universe, is that we are dependent on the source of love for love. And we can only love to the extent that we have been loved. It's, it's proportional. This is why the psychological studies show that infants who are taken care of, they're, they're fed, they're di- diapered, they're all of those things, are bathed, burped, the whole the yard, nine yards. But if they aren't loved, they die. They die. And, and I know of an actual story where a woman uh, in uh, an orphanage in Russia, I believe it was Russia, uh, her babies were dying. And she didn't know why. She was an Adventist woman. And she went to God and she said, God, why are my babies dying? And God said, do you love your babies? And so she started watching. She said, God said, watch the nurses. See what they're doing. Do they love the babies? So she started watching. And No, they were going through the routine. They weren't holding them. They weren't cuddling them. They weren't playing with them. And so she gathered her nurses together and she said, from now on, this is not enough what you're doing. You've got to do this also. You've got to love those babies. And, and immediately her mortality rate stopped. So was and Freud had been observed that. And, but there is something like there was a study in Frankfurt about four years ago. They studied a, a professional choir. They're singing the classic, you know, Bach. Mm-hmm. And they measured their blood panels before and afterward and when they're listening nothing really changed but when they praise God when they, when they sang when they you know really? it, every chemistry and factor of, of the, the immune system needs to be activated just went off the chart wow it was just incredible uh, that when you were it was really a neat study to show that you know that that whole Outward altruistic praise and worship is, is very, very powerful. For it, it changes not not just your thought; it changes your whole body. It is dynamic mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. healing. And so you try to do healing without spirituality. What are you going to get? You know, you're going to get partial healing. Yeah, that's uh, actually you're going to get modification. I see it. I see it as like what happened to me as a child when I had a terrible mouthful of teeth. Big teeth, small jaw, and uh, no room to grow anything. And so my dentist kindly pulled four molars out of my mouth, uh, and he decided to use uh, retainers to try to move my teeth. Well, um, we moved to Arizona, and the Pacific Union paid uh, their employees uh, the ability to have orthodontal care. I think it was a new thing that had just incorporated. And and so my parents immediately took me to an orthodontist. Actually, and the orthodontist said, well, what your dentist did, I know he was well-meaning and he meant to help you, but what he did is he tilted the teeth. He didn't really move them. 
<laughs> what you need is braces. So braces got put on, and we moved the teeth. For me, that's, a, that's an example of what we do, any behavior modification, any, anything we do to shift people in their thinking is really tilting them. It's not moving them. It is only the love of God that moves people. Uh, one of the, change. the uh, addiction treatment is, is this one of the neat hallmarks. There's never, nothing been able to be found other than a biblical, spiritual 12-step model that works for obsessive, compulsive, embedded behavior. That it has to be this, uh, I am powerless, the power outside of me. It has to be that model. All humanism is the officer of that model. It's all, I can do it, I can adjust your thinking, your thoughts, or manipulate your affection. <laughs> but, but that's the manipulative side of things, isn't it? it it's only... It's not healing. It's not, it's healing. not healing. It's, and, and to me, uh, the prescription God has given us is to get our heart and to completely transform it from the inside out. And, and of course, that's what Jesus says when we wash, if you wash just the outside of the cup, the cup's filthy still. You wash the clean inside, and it'll clean the outside. Well, have you ever tried washing the inside of a cup without washing the outside? It, the water goes on the outside. It cleanses both. So that's, let's close with that note. And How great can someone love as they're being loved, as they're loving, as God is the one that's, the source of their love. How how great can someone love? Uh, I think that, that of course. I think that our capacity to love increases with our being loved. The more we know the love of God, the more greater our capacity to love and be loved. The 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 more we the more we feel with the love of God, the more we want that love. The more overflows to other people. It's, it's a com- that's the way it's been in my life. And suffering, I want to tell you, suffering from other people, actually, if you t- grab a hold of the love of God when, you're, when other people have hurt you, it goes deeper, and your capacity to love your enemies, your capacity to love uh, those who have hurt you is just, it, it, it's huge. And it, it, it spares you all of the downside of having been abused by another person Father we thank you for your love we thank you that it is free we thank you that no one had to get it out of you that it was freely given by you that you cannot not love and we ask that you will shed your love abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and that he will immerse us in it and transform us into your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.